Leviticus 19. The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the entire assembly of Israel and say to them, Be holy, because I, the Lord your God, am holy. Each of you must respect your mother and father, and you must observe my Sabbaths. I am the Lord your God. Do not turn to idols or make metal gods for yourselves. I am the Lord your God. When you sacrifice a fellowship offering to the Lord, sacrifice it in such a way that it will be accepted on your behalf. It shall be eaten on the day you sacrifice it or on the next day. Anything left over until the third day must be burnt up. If any of it is eaten on the third day, it is impure and will not be accepted. Whoever eats it will be held responsible because they have desecrated what is holy to the Lord. They must be cut off from their people. When you reap the harvest of your land, do not reap to the very edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. Do not go over your vineyard a second time or pick up the grapes that have fallen. Leave them for the poor and the foreigner. I am the Lord your God. Do not steal. Do not lie. Do not deceive one another. Do not swear falsely by my name and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. Do not defraud or rob your neighbour. Do not hold back the wages of a hired worker overnight. Do not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block in front of the blind, but fear your God, I am the Lord. Do not pervert justice, do not show partiality to the poor or favouritism to the great, but judge your neighbour fairly. Do not go about spreading slander among your people. Do not do anything that endangers your neighbour's life, I am the Lord. Do not hate a fellow Israelite in your heart, rebuke your neighbour frankly so you will not share in their guilt. Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbour as yourself. I am the Lord. Keep my decrees. Do not make different kinds of animals. Do not plant your field with two kinds of seed. Do not wear clothing woven of two kinds of material. If a man sleeps with a female slave who was promised to another man, but who has not been ransomed or given her freedom, there must be due punishment. Yet they are not to be put to death because she had not been freed. The man, however, must bring a ram to the entrance of the tent of meeting for a guilt offering to the Lord. With the ram of the guilt offering, the priest is to make atonement for him before the Lord for the sin he has committed, and his sin will be forgiven. When you enter the land and plant any kind of fruit tree, regard its fruit as forbidden. For three years you are to consider it forbidden. It must not be eaten. In the fourth year, all its fruit will be holy, an offering of praise to the Lord. But in the fifth year, you may eat its fruit. In this way, your harvest will be increased. I am the Lord your God. Do not eat any meat with the blood still in it. Do not practice divination or seek omens. Do not cut the hair at the sides of your head or clip off the edges of your beard. Do not cut your bodies for the dead or put tattoo marks on yourselves. I am the Lord. Do not degrade your daughter by making her a prostitute or the land will turn to prostitution and be filled with wickedness. Observe my Sabbath and have reverence for my sanctuary. I am the Lord. Do not turn to mediums or seek out spiritists for you will be defiled by them. I am the Lord your God. Stand up in the presence of the aged, show respect for the elderly and revere your God. I am the Lord. When a foreigner resides among you in your land, do not mistreat them. The foreigner residing among you must be treated as your native-born. Love them as yourself, 
for you were foreigners in Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Do not use dishonest standards when measuring length, weight or quantity. Use honest scales and honest weights, an honest ephah and an honest hin. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. Keep all my decrees and all my laws and follow them. I am the Lord. Well, good morning. Uh, if you're visiting here this morning, uh, welcome. My name's Carl. I'm the, the pastor here. Um, before we get into Leviticus 19, I, I just have to, I can't leave this alone. I, I just thought it was a tremendous uh, demonstration of unity before, wasn't it? You know, the, the body of Christ brings being able to praise a West Coast supporter for a Hawthorne family. I, I just, breaking down the dividing wall of hostility. It's, uh, but then West Coast did win last week. Uh, so anyway. But, uh, it, you know, if you're here this morning, we're about breaking down the dividing wall of hostility, but we're, we're thinking more particularly uh, about Leviticus uh, 19 and we've been going through Leviticus uh, and Marty said a few weeks ago when he was leading the service, it's a bit strange, Leviticus is a bit odd to us uh, and, and what we're trying to do is wrestle with that, with that strangeness and that oddness and sort of come to grips with, well what does that mean for us today? This was uh, God's words to people 3,000 years ago or so, what, you know, what do we do with this today on this, uh, you know, in the year 2012 and this side of the cross of Jesus, what do we do with it? Well, uh, Leviticus 19, I think, is, uh, is an odd chapter, but it's an interesting chapter. It's, it's interesting because a lot of the stuff which is quoted here, or listed here, I should say, is quoted or referred to a lot in the, uh, in the New Testament. Uh, you might have noticed that because uh, verse 18, uh, love your neighbour as yourself, that verse is quoted nine times in the New Testament. Uh, verse 2 is, uh, is quoted in, uh, in one of Peter's letters, let us be holy because I, the Lord your God, am holy. Now, verse 12 is quoted in Matthew 5, do not swear falsely by my name. And, uh, and arguably, this chapter actually stands behind a fair chunk of the letter of James. Uh, I guess the point of, of, of saying all that is just to highlight that this isn't just the kind of chapter that you could skip over. There's some really key stuff here, there's some really important stuff. But there's also some quite challenging stuff. It's challenging because it seems to mix this chapter, it seems to mix wildly different things together. Some of the stuff I suspect we're not really quite sure about. There's stuff about tattoos, what do we do with that? There's laws about fruit trees, Uh, what do we do with those laws? There's a lot uh, in this chapter and there's a lot of kind of things held together which is a bit confusing. But because there's a lot... Uh, you'll be relieved to know that we're not going to try and cover it all this morning. Uh, I have a much more uh, or less ambitious goal, I suppose, and that is just to try and do two things. The first thing is to try and work out what holds this passage together. What, you know, what is the, kind of the, the main idea behind this passage? I think if we, if we see that, it will help us get our focus right as we try and work through some of this, this uh, what might appear to us strange stuff. So that's the first thing, what holds the passage together? The second thing is, uh, I want to think about how do you get from there to here? How do you, you know, what kind, of, what kind of steps do you take to get from Leviticus 
to today? How do we apply these laws today? I want to try and think about what's a framework that we can use to do that. Uh, and, then, and then we'll try and apply that framework to a couple of examples from the chapter. Now, there's going to be uh, maybe a lot of unanswered questions and to try and remedy that, there's going to be a bit of a Q&A at the end of the session. So, if, as we're going through, if you think of a question, if there's something that you don't understand, there'll be a little bit of time uh, at the end uh, to, to try and ask those and, and hopefully I can try and give some kind of an answer. But the first question uh, that we want to uh, ask of this passage is, how does this hold together? How does, you know, what's the main idea that sits behind this passage? You don't have to be a uh, rocket scientist to see that some things here are connected. Uh, verses 9 to 18, there's just a whole lot of laws about looking after your neighbour. Uh, and those verses are concluded with that famous verse, uh, love your neighbour as yourself. In that list of things like not stealing, not lying, not cursing the deaf, uh, not putting an obstacle in front of the blind, not spreading slander, not endangering someone's life uh, and not hating people. Uh, there's clearly two, uh, a number of laws about mixtures which are connected to each other. So in verse 19, uh, we're told not to, to, the people were told not to make different kinds of animals, they were told not to plant fields of two kinds of seeds uh, and not to make clothes of two different types of material. You know, clearly those things are, are somehow connected. There's stuff too uh, about not using sorcery, not cutting bodies for the dead uh, and not visiting mediums and, and spiritists. So there's clearly stuff which is kind of connected you know, within itself, uh, if you like, connected to each other. But I guess what really puzzles us about this chapter is that even though some bits are obviously connected, as a whole this chapter just seems to be a kind of a really eclectic mix of a whole bunch of different things. The, uh, the NIV Bible heads the chapter Various Laws, which is kind of a little bit of a cop-out, <laughs> I reckon. You know, it's like we couldn't think of anything else, Various Laws, we'll just call it that. But you end up asking uh, the, of this chapter, you know, what, what's, what's the point? What's, what's with the variety of laws? Why, why are they just all thrown together here? Why? What purpose? And in some ways, the answer is simpler than you might, ima- that you might imagine because really the answer is given right at the beginning of the chapter. Uh, in verse 1 and 2, the Lord said to Moses, Speak to the entire assembly of Israel and say to them, Be holy because I, the Lord your God, am holy. In other words, this chapter is kind of the classic example maybe of missing the forest for the trees. We kind of just run headlong into the chapter and and get caught up in all the different laws and we miss the purpose. This chapter is all about imitating God's holiness. And if you lose that emphasis, if you lose the emphasis of imitating the holiness of God then this chapter just kind of falls apart and and you miss the boat. What draws these laws together, what draws this chapter together is that idea of imitating the holiness of God. Now we try and uh, and imitate people all the time, don't we? Uh, We see people on TV and we imitate them. We want to speak like them, we want to sing like them maybe, we want to dance Uh, like them, we want to look like them, we want to dress like them, we want to play piano like them, we want to play footy like them. Uh, You know, sometimes, I don't know, if you ever ever watch the footy and you see someone uh, kick this awesome goal from uh, from the pocket or something like that and uh, and you think to yourself, I reckon I could learn to do that. 
and uh, you know you go outside with your with your Sharon and you try kick you know <laughs> try a few check side kicks and it just never works out, does it? But anyway, but the but the point is we see people, don't we? We see people around us, we see people on TV, and and we want to be like them. Um, it might work better for you. It doesn't. It never works for me. Uh, but but what this chapter is talking about is not imitating other people. It's talking about imitating God. It's about seeing God. It's about seeing a vision of the holiness of God and saying, I want to be like that. It's not talking about becoming God, uh, like God in terms of power. That's impossible. It's not talking about becoming like God in terms of his authority. That's what Adam and Eve tried to do when they got kicked out of the Garden of Eden. They, they tried to be like God. They tried to uh, take God's authority. That's what we do when we sin. We try and take God's authority. This chapter doesn't call us to become like God in every sense, but it does call us to become like God in terms of his holiness and his perfection. So what does that look like? Okay, there's the general goal. Well, what does it look like to imitate the holiness of God? And the rest of the chapter gives us an outline. It gives us a sketch it gives us kind of like a few points here and there that we can kind of join up the dots and try and begin to, to get a shape of what it looks like to follow God, to be like God in terms of his holiness. What confuses us the most, I think, about this chapter is that it touches on what we might consider really major things and also kind of peripheral or minor things. It puts together stealing and witchcraft alongside respect for the elderly and, and, and rising when, the, when an old person comes into the room. But in that juxtaposition, in that putting together of these two kind of major and these minor things, there is a deeply profound point. In giving us a full-orbed picture of what it looks like to imitate the holiness of God, this chapter doesn't just settle for the majors, it doesn't just settle for idolatry and sorcery and prostitution. It touches too on what we might be tempted to overlook. It touches too on honesty and justice and care for the aged and respect for our parents. See, our temptation is, isn't it, to get stuck on the, on the big things. So, we kind of think to ourselves, well, I've got murder kind of sussed. I, I, I reckon I'm pretty good with that one, uh, you know, we never say this out loud, but we think, you know, it's sort of, I think I'm travelling pretty well, actually. I think I've got this imitating the holiness of God thing squared, squared away. But this chapter won't let us do that because it pushes holiness into kind of every area and every dimension of our lives. It touches the big and the small. That's the point, you see. That's the point of this chapter. Now you could add other things to, to what's given here. You could add other, other laws. But kind of as a bit of a summary of, of, uh, of imitating the holiness of God, this chapter is pretty useful. Uh, that's why I think you get that, that key summary of the second table of the law. It's called, love your neighbour as yourself. You know, that's Jesus' summary of the law and it's taken right out of this chapter. This chapter is a summarising chapter. We have in this chapter this, this idea of loving your neighbour as yourself 
which Jesus says is the second great commandment, after loving God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. And in a way, if we take that larger goal of this chapter, to pursue and imitate the holiness of God, if we take that, if we pursue that, if we seek to please God and everything, if we seek to delight him in everything, if we seek to do what he desires above all else, in a sense to do that, to pursue that, is to love God with all our heart. It's to love him with every fibre of our being. In other words, this chapter is kind of you know, the Old Testament version of Jesus' two great commandments, to love God with all our heart and to love our neighbour as ourselves. And yet I guess the reality is, isn't it, that we can't imitate the holiness of God. Imitating the holiness of God is something that we clearly are unable to do. We can't achieve it. We, you know, even as hard as we try, we just never get there. We're sinful people. We're born sinful people. Without Christ, our natural inclination, our natural tendency is to reject God. Which is why this call in this chapter to imitate the holiness of God has to be set in the context of the gospel. It has to be set in the context of the good news of Jesus. Even as we read this chapter, as we read it in its original setting, we need to understand how it fits in with the gospel. Casting forward to the New Testament, the call in this chapter to imitate the holiness of God is taken up in the New Testament, by Jesus' call to follow him. That is, Jesus claims that the way to imitate God is to imitate him because he is the Son of God. He's, he's God's Son and he's one with the Father. How do we imitate God? We imitate Christ. But more importantly, following Jesus is crucial because his sacrifice becomes the source of forgiveness for our failure to imitate God. It's a source of forgiveness for our failure to live up to God's standard of holiness. And Jesus' life, which he now lives to the glory of the Father, is also the source of life. It's a source of power for us to enable us to imitate the holiness of God and to follow, uh, to follow God. In the words of uh, Matthew 5, which we looked at a few months ago, the fulfilment of this chapter, the fulfilment of this part of the law is found in Jesus isn't it? It's found in Jesus and it's found in Jesus fulfilling it in us. So, in a way, here is the, the, the really big point, I guess, of this chapter. You know, if you, if you take nothing else away from today, take away at least this. Imitate the holiness of God. That's the point. And imitate the holiness of God by following and trusting Jesus. That's how this call is fulfilled in our lives. It's by trusting in and following Jesus. So that's the, uh, I guess that's, that's the outline. Now let's look at some of the details. This chapter is, uh, as a whole is fundamentally about pursuing God and imitating his holiness. But now we need to kind of work out how do we take the specifics of the chapter and, and, and move from Leviticus to today? You know, what do we do, for instance, with the laws uh, about tattoos? What do we do with the laws about fruit trees? What do we even do with that law about rising in the presence of the elderly? Before we look uh, at any particular laws, uh, it's helpful, I think, to make just a few observations. 
to kind of get our understanding of, of how things worked uh, in the Bible with the, with the laws. Uh, it's important to remember at the start that laws in the Bible are not like the laws that we have today. You know, we have these great legal codes. You know, I don't know if you've ever seen like a lawyer on television and uh, there's just all those books behind them, you know, and they're always nicely bound and they're always matching. Uh, you know, this is kind of all the, the legal codes of, of Australian society kind of piled up on the shelves behind them. Well, the Bible's laws are, are not like that. You know, if you try to, uh, con- if you try, to try someone uh, these days, uh, according to the law, do not steal, it, it, it probably wouldn't work. Uh, you know, it's too broad, it's too imprecise for the way our legal system works. Uh, you know, they're always having to, to expand laws and create new laws to fill in the gaps because the laws today, our laws, need to be very specific. But the laws in the Bible tend to be general because they embody general principles. They were never intended to cover sort of every case. They were always intended to be looked at, to be understood, to be looked behind in a sense and, and to be kind of the, the principle to be taken, to be absorbed and to be applied in other ways. Having said that, uh, it's important, I, I guess, as well to, to mention that that's not an easy thing to do. Uh, that, that can be a really hard thing to do and, and the process then too of moving from Leviticus to today is also a pretty hard thing to do. It's not easy, it takes a lot of work uh, and it takes a lot of prayer and it takes a lot of reflection and it's the kind of thing that you'll keep reflecting on for the rest of your life. You, you, I don't think you can ever go away and you say, well, you know what, I, I have worked out all the implications of do not steal because for the rest of your life you'll be, you'll, you'll be challenged by what the implications of that will be. Understanding how these laws work is a bit like understanding how wisdom in the Bible works. They're principles and the application of them to our lives takes prayer and reflection. But having said that, it's useful to, to try and think about uh, I guess, a bit of a framework to move from, from then to today. Now, I want to borrow uh, uh, some principles from a guy named C.J. Wright. He uh, has written a lot of stuff about this and he's written a, a, a massive book that's purple. I don't know why he'd ever publish a book that was entirely purple. But anyway, it's, uh, it's a great book called Ethics for the People of God uh, and it's a book on how to move from laws in the Bible to today. And he gives four principles, but I'm going to narrow it down to three questions and I'm going to add a, a fourth one. Uh, so anyway, but, so the first, uh, the first question is this. How did the particular law fit within their world? How did the particular law fit within their world? How did it fit with their other laws? How did it fit within the way their families operated? So their families, for instance tended to have more authority structures uh, built into them than ours do, such that sometimes in the Old Testament families took on more of the responsibility for, for settling disputes. Maybe they would take on responsibilities for things that maybe today would be taken on by the courts. So uh, how, how does it fit within their world? Israel too was a, was a nation state. They were ruled by God through kings and prophets and priests. How does the law sit within that context? We're not ruled by uh, a theocracy. We live in a democracy ruled by secular politicians. 
they, Israel, lived to an agrarian life. They lived on the land. They grew crops. They milked cows. They did whatever it is that you do with sheep uh, and goats. They, uh, they lived in a time too where there was a sacrificial system, uh, the ritual system of the Old Testament. How did the laws relate to that? In other words, their world, <laughs> here's the shocking reality, their world was different to our world. And we need to understand their world before we can take these laws and apply them in our own. That's the first question. How did this law fit in their world? Second, what was the objective or the objectives, sometimes there's more than one, of the law? What was the purpose? What was this law trying to achieve? What's the principle? That's the second question. Third, how can we try and meet those same objectives in our society and in our world? And the fourth question, which I would add, uh, in some ways it's kind of bound up with the first one, but it's kind of useful to have it as, a, as another. And, and maybe this question should come third as well, but this is another important question. How does the work of Jesus transform this law, if at all? Uh, you know, we've kind of thought about that in the past weeks in Leviticus as we looked at the sacrificial system. Obviously, the work of Jesus transforms that radically. Uh, and over the next few weeks we'll look at some others like, uh, like the Sabbath and uh, uh, other ones too, uh, punishments and, and, and justice. How does the work of Jesus uh, transform the reality of those laws? So they're really the four big questions. Now if you haven't remembered them, uh, I, uh, I'm going to post them on my blog hopefully later today or, or sometime uh, and so you can go and look them up if you want to look them up at uh, thesprinkledblood.blogspot.com or you can get there through uh, the church website. So I'm going to put those, lo- those principles up there so that you can, you can look at them and try and think through them. But let's now be a little bit practical and actually use that to look at uh, a couple of the laws in this chapter. And we'll start with, a, with a kind of an easier one. So in verse 4, Do not turn to idols or make gods of cast metal for yourselves. I am the Lord your God. So first of all we can observe, uh, start by observing how the law fitted in their world. In their world uh, people replaced God by making uh, little objects out of metal in the shapes of animals and of people and all kinds of things. That's how people would replace God. That was the customary way to replace God. It was by making things out of metal. It was by making idols. Now that doesn't happen uh, very much in our world. Uh, it still happens a bit. Some people still have idols. Uh, maybe not many in Australia, but if you went to Japan, for instance, you'd find that ancestor worship is alive and well and that in a lot of people's homes there is a section marked out uh, you know, where they'll, they'll pray and they have all the, the paraphernalia for their ancestor worship. Uh, in countries where there's uh, Hinduism and Buddhism, uh, you'll still find uh, idols of various kinds. So for some people... Uh, living in the world today, you could take this command almost directly and, and, and apply it to them. But for us it's a, it's a bit more tricky, isn't it? Because in our world that's not the chief way that people try and replace God. You see, the principle behind this command is don't replace God with something else, don't replace God with another God made out of metal and don't replace him with anything else either. In our society people don't try and replace God with cast metal idols in the shape of animals or people. 
Uh, they might try and replace God with cast metal idols in the shape of cars, you know, or iPhones or things like that. Uh, but, but if the danger for them in their day was to replace God with cast metal idols in the shape of animals, the danger for us is to replace God with everything else. To replace God with cars or toys or work or relationships or sex or self-esteem uh, or, or success or holidays, you name it, you know, you can replace God with it. The basic point of verse 4 then is to say, don't do it. Don't replace God with anything, with anything at all. So that's the first uh, example. And the first example of thinking through, I guess, that framework of moving from then to today. The second one uh, is uh, found in verse verse 9 and 10. This is, uh, this is actually one of my favourites. This, is one of my, this I think is my favourite Old Testament uh, law. It's just uh, immensely wise and useful and so multifaceted. Uh, so in verse 9 God says, when you reap the harvest of your land, do not reap to the very edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. Do not go over your vineyard a second time or pick up the grapes that have fallen. Leave them for the poor and the alien. I am the Lord your God. Here is a great example of a law which if you did it today, you would leave the law completely unfulfilled. For starters, most of us uh, don't have fields, most of us don't have vineyards, uh, we, uh, there's nothing for us to leave unharvested. And, uh, and if we do have fields uh, or, or vineyards, if we left the edges unharvested or if we didn't go over the vineyard a second time, it wouldn't help the poor. You know, you could, you could leave the edges of your field harvested to your heart's delight and it wouldn't be helpful to anyone. You see, in the days that, these law, that this law was given, uh, even people who didn't own land, they lived near the land, they lived near other people who, who did own land, they could, it was accessible, uh, you know, fields were harvested by hand, bits were easily left behind, they could easily go out and, and do a bit of harvesting themselves. The land was open for the poor to come in and, and to pick up what was left behind. That's the context of the law in their world. And the principle which the law was trying to convey was the poor ought to be provided for. So how do you apply that law then today? How do you move from their society to our society? Some people say that uh, maybe a good way of, of, of fulfilling this law is by giving money to sort of welfare agencies or, or, or supporting uh, agencies like that. And that's, uh, that's not a bad start. I don't, I don't think that's a bad idea. But I think there's some hidden wisdom in this law that we need to pick up on. You see, this law expects some degree of exertion from the poor person in order to benefit from the generosity of the farmer. The farmer didn't, wasn't told to, to harvest their field completely, to gather up some of what they uh, had harvested and then take it to, to the poor. No, it was the edges of the field were left for the poor to come and to harvest themselves. One of the great dangers uh, in any society and in our own society as well is of creating a welfare mentality. There are some people who abuse uh, the welfare system, uh, who take what they can because they're lazy. There are also people on welfare who are not like that at all. There are people who are on 
on welfare who, given half the chance, would love to work a hard day. There are people who are on welfare who simply can't work because they're too sick. But what this law is showing is the wisdom in trying to provide welfare without creating a kind of a welfare mentality, trying to avoid both errors, both of not providing and also of providing so generously that people are sort of trained in laziness. Now there are caveats, there always are. Uh, As I said, some people are too sick to work, some people already work extremely hard but, but don't make enough money to support themselves or their family. Some, pe- some children suffer because uh, of the laziness of their parents. All those things need to be taken into consideration uh, as we reflect on this law. And uh, we also need to take into consideration that there are places in the Bible where unwarranted kindness and generosity is commended. I mean, after all, God's gift to us of salvation is something that we've never worked for. So it's not that we should never give without it, you know, we should never give unless someone has, has, has put in an effort for it. No, what this law is trying to do is trying to avoid, it's trying to, to steer a course between generosity and avoiding that, the kind of promotion of laziness. But again, uh, this law goes even further than that. You see, what underpins the generosity to the poor in this law uh, is the farmer not taking everything that he can get. In fact, this kind of the whole idea behind this law is the farmer not taking what actually belongs to him. So the, the field belongs to him, what he's, what he's sown belongs to him. But God is saying to him, no, actually, there's some bits at the edges. They don't actually belong to you. They belong to the poor. That principle uh, has applications to lots of things, I think. Uh, but one example maybe is in business. You might uh, be running a business or you might uh, be working for a business, running somebody else's business. Now you can either uh, run that business in such a way that you try to capture every sector of the market that's available. Uh, you try and capture, capture every sector of the market so that every other business in town is run out of business. Uh, you can either run it that way or you can work hard, work diligently but also at the same time leave room for smaller, maybe struggling businesses to enable them to still make a living even while you work hard and diligently and use the gifts that God's given you. See, what's particularly interesting about this law, I think, uh, well, it's interesting to me anyway, is that uh, it rejects both full-scale capitalism, right, which our society is so enamoured with, it rejects both full-scale capitalism, which says milk it until it runs dry and run over everybody else in the process. It rejects both that and it rejects socialism and communism, the idea of equal distribution of wealth. This law puts limits on both. It puts limits both on capitalism in that it provides for the poor and it also puts limits on socialism in that it upholds the ownership of land and the pursuit of business. In other words, this law, this two verses in the Old Testament, contains a whole body of wisdom for how to conduct ourselves in our society imitating the holiness of God. So there are two uh, examples uh, from the Old Testament, from this chapter, uh, of how to take the law of Leviticus 19 to go through a few steps uh, and to apply it to today. 
and, and I think there's a lot of wisdom, as we've seen, uh, in those laws if we can uh, work hard to uncover it. But even as, uh, as we think about that, even as we, we work hard to do that, we always need to keep in the forefront of our mind what is the focus of this chapter. We need to remember that the main aim of all this is not simply to understand the laws and to do the right thing. The aim of all this, of thinking about all this, of working hard to, to work through all this stuff, the aim of all that is to love God and to imitate his holiness. And if we lose that emphasis, we've missed the boat. If we lose that emphasis, you, you can keep all these laws to your heart's content. But you won't be keeping them at all. But we also need to remember that in the pursuit of that goal, in the pursuit of imitating the holiness of God, in the pursuit of loving God with all our heart, we need to ground that in the good news about Jesus. We need to ground that in the good news about Jesus as our perfect example. We need to ground that in the good news about Jesus as the source of forgiveness for our failure to, to, to do these things and to imitate God as perfectly as we ought to. We need to ground these things in the good news about Jesus as our life, as our, as our source of life through the Holy Spirit who breaks our slavery to sin. In practical terms, that means that as we work through this stuff, we need to do it on our knees. We need to do it in humility. We need to do it confessing our sin, confessing where we fail. We need to do it trusting in the death of Jesus and asking God for wisdom and for power through the Holy Spirit to be able to put these things into practice. It means daily asking God for those things and daily trusting as well that God will give what he's promised. Amen. Let me pray. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, we ask uh, that we would never lose sight of this amazing call to imitate you with regard to holiness. Lord, we pray that uh, as we fix our eyes on Jesus that you would enable us to do that, that you would enable us to be like him in the way that he loved you with all his heart and soul and mind and strength. Lord, we pray that you would forgive us for the many times when we fail in that. Lord, forgive us for instead of imitating you, imitating uh, the people that we see around us. Lord, we pray that you would forgive us for that and direct us again to the many different ways in which we can follow Christ and be like him. Father, we pray that you would forgive us for the way which we uh, replace you with, with idols of different kinds. Lord, whether it's sport or entertainment or work, or relationships, or children, whatever it is, Lord, we pray that you'd forgive us for replacing you with other things. Lord, we ask that more and more you would be at the very centre of our lives and that we would idolise you and seek to be like you. And Lord, we pray that you would forgive us too for the times when we fail to be generous to the poor, Lord, we pray that you'd forgive us for the times when we take all that we can get for ourselves and we don't share that with others who are less fortunate than us. Lord, help us to be wise in the way that we do that. 
Lord, help us uh, to try and be compassionate and at the same time try not to teach people to be lazy. Lord, that's a hard thing to do, but we ask that you give us wisdom in that. But most of all, wisdom drenched with compassion and love and kindness uh, of the kind that you showed us in the gospel uh, of your son. Father, there's many other things here that we don't understand, but we ask that in time you would bring us to understanding. Forgive us for the things that we do not do that we ought, but Lord, we pray that increasingly you would mould us and make us into the image of your beloved Son. We ask it in his name. Amen. Now we're going to... uh, Opportunity now for some questions. Uh, If there's no questions, that's okay. Uh, If there are hard questions, that's not okay. Uh, So, and Eric has a roving mic. It's like Donahue, or not that Donahue's around anymore, but is he? Uh, So, does anyone have a question? Come on. Eric even got the mic out. Testing one, two. Yep. Oh, Fred's got one. Oh, you're in trouble. Can't yeah, that's right. No, Fred's nice. <laughs> yeah. When we were reading verse, uh, verse 27, do not cut the hair at the size of your head or clip off the edges of your beard. Yeah. Yeah? You see these Orthodox Jews with these long side curls, and in my opinion it looks a bit ridiculous, but that's their choice. But they base it on this text. Yes, that's right. But is there any connection that you could think of with the holiness of God or something like that? Yeah. Does it fit in somehow? What does it mean? What, is it, what did it mean at the time? Yeah, I think that's the question. Uh, what did it mean at the time? And also, uh, where it sits in the chapter is kind of useful as well. So verse 26, do not eat meat with the blood still in it, do not practice divination. Then you've got, do not cut the hair, do not cut your bodies for the dead. Um, right? So it's all stuff, it's, a, it's a kind of a grouping of stuff about uh, idolatry uh, and, and kind of practices from other nations, I think, uh, kind of from other religions. And so, the, like the the uh, the idea is, I think that uh, there are other nations around who who cut their hair in a particular way as a, as a kind of religious rite, and this and that verse is saying, don't don't be like that. Uh, don't. It's another way I think of saying verse five. Don't verse four. Don't replace God with these religious practices from other nations. Now, ironically, I think that applies to. Uh, um, to the Jews today who leave the edges of their beards, beards uncut, I think that kind of almost reverse applies to them in that they replace God, instead of replacing God with the religious practices of another nation, they've replaced God with these kind of self-made religious practices. So ironically, I think they're actually breaking the law that they set out to uphold. Yeah. Thank you. Oh, Hank and then Elizabeth. I don't think Hank needs this, but... (laughs) We talk about the holiness of God, Mm. but I believe uh, Jesus Christ uh, has obtained that holiness for me. I start off with being holy. Yep. It's not I'm trying to attain holiness. No, that's right. I understand that right. Yeah, I don't think I heard it this morning, but I may have missed it. Yeah, uh, I think it's I think it's the case of 
Jesus obtains that holiness for us and, we grow, and what we're doing is growing into that. So we, we achieve that, if you like, that status through Christ's death and resurrection and what this chapter is picking up on, I think both in Leviticus and in the New Testament, is picking up a growing into that, growing into what we are, you know, becoming more, more like Christ. So we are already holy in Christ but we're growing more into that reality. Yeah. Does that make yep, sense? But I mean, what I'm trying to say is... If we are daily aware of the fact that we are mm. holy in Christ, that we are partakers of the divine nature, yeah. then it would be a an, an, uh, an, an better incentive, wouldn't it be? I think, I think that uh, certainly is an incentive. I think, that, I think the Bible gives us lots of Anyways. incentives to pursue the holiness of God. Yeah, but I think that's, that's useful, yeah. Thank you, and Carl can have a discussion after church. Yeah, I think Elizabeth had one as well. Elizabeth? Um, this is a question about the Sabbath, which we're probably going to deal with on a yeah. later date. Um, but if the Sabbath is clearly, you know, told us to do, you know, they observe my Sabbath back yeah. in Leviticus 19, but then you've got Paul in Colossians saying, don't let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration or a Sabbath day. How do we hold those two ideas together? Yeah. Yeah, I will deal with that. In, in a few weeks. <laughs> no. Uh, well, there's, there's a chapter uh, in a few weeks. There's the Sabbath and the Sabbath year and the year of Jubilee. And I was going to try to pull all those together. But I think the answer, like just in brief, in terms of the framework, the answer lies in what did it mean for them? How did it fit within who they were? That is, the covenant people of God. Uh, uh, yeah, so how did the Sabbath fit within that? And I think that kind of unlocks then the idea to how we apply it today and, and what Paul says. So, But we'll get, we'll, get, we'll get there. I noticed that Elizabeth made a note of you're going to preach on that in a few weeks' time. So. Yeah, that's right. Any more? I think Exodus, Exodus 24 or something like that is... Anyway. I like buying cotton blend socks. But I noticed this morning that could be an evil thing to do. It does point out some of the absurdity, though, when we take those laws to the extreme, doesn't it? And you've tried to point that out. Yeah. But perhaps we could extrapolate that a little bit. Yeah, the, uh, sorry, the absurdity or the, <laughs> the single blend socks? So should I only sing by uh, yeah. single cotton socks? Yeah. And again, the, uh, the need to be careful yes, in, right. in applying those laws straight to this life. Yeah, absolutely. Well, yeah, again, you have to understand it in, you know, how it fit within their context. And in their context, there were still the laws about cleanness. And the laws about cleanness, which are in Leviticus 11 to 15, are all about suitable boundaries between different parts of creation. And so it makes sense to understand those laws all about, uh, all about that, uh, which are then sort of... Those laws foreshadow, again, the kind of... the the people of God being distinct and holy and set apart from things which, which make them impure. So those laws foreshadow that. I don't think they're about mixing two kinds of seeds. So <laughs> you can have your polycottons, uh, whatever. Yeah. It's the same with sorry. It's the same with the tattoos as well. I think like the tattoos again. It's well. That's kind of with the religious religious practices. It's about you know you really have to understand how it sits within the original context.
I wonder if there's not a more practical way that we can interpret that because this, past, this whole chapter um, in context of the people going, yep. it says when you come into the land, um, if God's not preparing them and uh, it's a, a way of sustainability. One of the verses that says that to me is about the fruit trees. Yep. Now I know when you plant fruit trees, even hybrid varieties, that um, for the first couple of years, if you pick off the fruit yeah. um, and leave it, that it's to the benefit of the tree That's true, and yes. the ongoing fruit. So although the cotton blend socks might be fine today, yeah, there yeah. may have been some practical um, reasons back then um, with regards to the materials. So Yes, I think that's true. I think, I think you can always see in the biblical laws, like even with the cleanness laws which are eminently taken up in the work of Christ, uh, you can see that there's kind of a sense to them. You know, like a lot, of the law, a lot of the animals that were unclean were actually kind of disease carriers. But that's not the, that's not the main reason, that's not the reason for the law. It just, it's kind of a side benefit of the symbolic purpose of the law, I think. Um, yeah. But it's a useful point. Maybe one more last yeah. one. Yeah, one last question. You, you did say in your sermon that um, none of us have vineyards and stuff. Uh, I was wondering, Chris has a vineyard. Yes. A, well, a very big one too. So. And I actually helped question. Chris pick grapes the other day and um, I went back a second time. It's not, it's, not, <laughs> it's not the vineyard I'm worried about. It's, it's um, do I need to remove my tattoos? This is, no, I wouldn't... If you were called with tattoos, I wouldn't... Uh, no, in, the, in the ilk of 1 Corinthians 7, if, if you had cat tattoos when you were called. No. I mean, in that, that law is, is, is the reason behind it in, in the context there is uh, do not cut your bodies for the dead. It's taking up tattooing, which was a religious practice, somehow bound up with death in some other culture. Um, but I would... Yeah, this is a, this is a, this is a tricky... Tricky, yeah, that's right. But I would say that doesn't mean it's carte blanche for tattooing. Uh, yeah, I think you still need to... That was the original context. That law doesn't prohibit tattooing, but I think there's still legitimate questions to be asked about how can I honour God with my body? How can I honour the body that God's given me? And I would probably ask questions about it in that context. Maybe, Carl, you could address that a little bit more on your blog. Yep. Because I just met a young man yesterday who had his love for Christ tattooed in his arm, which I thought was wonderful. But, um, yeah, so maybe you would like to do that in your blog and can unpack that and encourage that. We sing now, Revive Us, O Lord. Let's stand up and uh, we're almost there.